You're listening to Hear Arizona. Addressing issues, empowering our community. It's yet another 100 degree day in late September, which should be the end of the summer in Phoenix. I arrive at Justice Center, a relatively small building just down the road from the state capitol. The center's outer wall has a pretty mural of the wild desert. The shining sun, canyon walls, purple mountains in the distance. Hi, I'm Anthony. Hi, Anthony. If you want to walk around, you're more than welcome to. The place is dedicated to serving older people, over 55, with no place to call home. It offers food, showers, counseling, help navigating government programs, and maybe most importantly in the summertime, air conditioning. The asphalt outside the center and all around Phoenix can reach up to 180 degrees on hot days. Inside, people mingle and line up for food. It's 3 p.m., but it's dinner time. A man with long gray hair approached me. What's your name? Me? I'm Michael. I'm Anthony. Hi, Anthony. I have a question. Yeah. Is that a digital recorder or a transmitter? We found a table and he told me his story. And here, Michael Smith. Easy one to forget. He hadn't been living on the streets in this part of Phoenix for long. I know no people here. I have no friends. I have no family to interact with. I moved here from Washington State because my mother had three major strokes and was paralyzed. He said in Washington, he was making great money as a project manager, over $80,000 a year. And when he moved here, he was working, things were going well. And most importantly, he was with his mom. Well, I got to visit her almost every day and I kissed her goodbye the night she died. But she didn't die alone and that's what mattered to me the most. I didn't want her to feel like she was forgotten and left out of life. Then came a string of bad luck. He had major medical problems with his stomach and a bad bike accident. And shattered my ankle and my shoulder and put together there with metal plates and screws and my abs are pig guts and plastic. (laughs) Michael told me because of these medical problems, he can't work. He lived on savings for a while, but sometime around January 2021, a friend he was living with moved and he was out of options for housing. He was urban camping in Peoria for a while until the cops picked him up. They dropped him off in downtown Phoenix, and there he faced his first summer on the streets. What's it like, um, you know, dealing with the heat? It's been miserable. I mean, this place to me has helped a lot. By this place, he means Justice Center. During the daytime, the center is a lifesaver. They open at 7. Sometimes I get here at 5 and wait out front. And then they, they close at 4.30, which is going to be pretty soon. And then from there, I'm lucky enough that I have some income. I mean, I can afford to go to the, a tavern like once a week or something and have a beer and sit in the A.C. and be comfortable. And he needs A.C. A lot of shelters close at night, and even at night, it can reach 100 degrees outside. I talked to a lot of people experiencing homelessness for this podcast— and all of them had dealt with heat stroke multiple times. It's a normal part of life for them. How many times have you happened here? At least three or four. You get dizzy, dizzy, dizzy. You're kind of, your vision gets blurry. 
then you just kind of like pass out. <laughs> the last time it happened, he was out for a day of doctor's appointments, trying to kill time between visits. It's hard to find a piece of shade where you can sit and relax for a minute and kind of cool off. Uh, can't really tell you exactly what happened. Otherwise, I did a, other than doing a face plant on the concrete. <laughs> I left him at 4.30 p.m., the time Justice Center closed and basically the hottest part of the day. He's an upbeat guy with a bag of books to pass the time and a leopard print top hat to shade some sun. Well, I gotta get to the store. Right. Next bus is a half hour out, so. He was off to try to survive in the heat, make it until the center opens up again at 7 a.m. Yeah, the next well, morning. You have a great yeah. evening. Have a good day, it's good to meet you. Likewise. Yeah. Um, Global temperatures are rising, and drought, wildfires, and extreme heat are becoming increasingly dire issues all over the planet. But Phoenix and its surrounding areas, the sprawling metropolis in the Sonoran Desert, is on the front lines in the fight against these threats. Michael is just one person whose life in the so-called Valley of the Sun has been dramatically impacted by its harsh environment. People like Michael are at the center of this series. There's plenty of important science and policy to cover, and we will touch on all that as we go. But above all else, we want to know how the increasingly hostile desert climate we live in affects real people. People like you, me, and our neighbors across the Phoenix metro area and beyond. On this episode, we cover the most visceral quality of our environment. The thing Phoenix is arguably most famous for. The thing that kills more people in our country each year than hurricanes, tornadoes, lightning, floods, and earthquakes combined. Heat. From here, Arizona, this is Inhospitable. I'm Anthony Wallace. Michael told me that when he overheated and passed out, somebody was nearby to help him get water and recover. If he wasn't as lucky, he may have become a statistic. There were 323 heat-associated deaths in Maricopa County, the county that contains Phoenix, in 2020. To put that in context, that's more than the total number of people who died from hurricanes across the U.S. between 2013 and 2020 put together. The Justice Center is combating this problem as a part of the Maricopa Association of Governments, or MAG's, Heat Relief Network. The Heat Relief Network was formed in 2005 after there were 30 deaths that were experienced amongst homeless people here in Maricopa County. Julie Montoya is a human services planner at MAG. And while the death toll in 2005 was so jarring it inspired the Heat Relief Network, the problem is much worse now. There were over four times as many heat-associated deaths in the county in 2020 than there were in 2005. So MAG works with researchers at Arizona State University to identify people and places most in need of cooling centers, and then they recruit organizations that can provide life-saving water and air conditioning. You know, over the years, we've tried to be more intentional about partnering with other agencies and cities and providers. We work with faith-based groups. Uh, any businesses, nonprofit agencies, you name it. If anybody wants to um, work with us, we're, we're open to it. 
This is the kind of government, university, nonprofit collaboration that I found is really common in Phoenix's fight against heat. And as the rest of the world heats up, they're looking to Phoenix, the hottest big city in the U.S., to see what works. In fact, the city of Phoenix just created the first publicly funded heat office in the country. ASU heat expert David Hondula will be its first leader. But let's take a step back for a second, because figuring out how to live in the brutally hot and dry desert of the Salt River Valley, where Phoenix now lies, is something humans have been doing for a long, long time. People have lived on the land today called Arizona for at least 12,000 years. You might think Arizona's prehistoric citizens favored the cooler highlands of the northern part of the state, but... Paradoxically, prior to really the 20th century, most people in Arizona settled in those desert areas because of the few rivers and streams that flowed through the region. And, you know, the best example of that is the Salt River Valley and the Gila River Valley. Thomas Sheridan is an historical and environmental anthropologist. He's been a professor at University of Arizona School of Anthropology for nearly 20 years, and he's written multiple books, including a definitive history of the state of Arizona. He studies how human societies not only transform their environments, but are transformed by their environments, and how oftentimes the interactions with the environment lead to very unequal access to those resources. Environmental challenges leading to worsening inequality is a theme that will come up over and over again. But for now, I want to focus on the point that humans have long been attracted to this area because of its flowing water. And they've come up with ingenious world-leading solutions to survive the elements here. The people of the Salt River Valley have always been on the leading edge of extreme climate living. About 2,000 years ago, there was the advent of the Hohokam. The Hohokam developed the largest irrigation civilization in all of Native North America. You know, when you look at Hohokam civilization, it lasted for at least a thousand years, which is a pretty good run as civilizations go. But something caused the remarkably advanced Hohokam civilization to collapse around 500 years ago. No one knows exactly what happened, but a lot of theories say it had something to do with the natural environment and or overpopulation. In Sheridan's book, He writes that Arizona history is a series of booms and busts. And for the past 70 years or so, we have been booming. Arizona, the land of sunshine and blue skies. The state of tomorrow, the second fastest growing of all these United States. Well, this is Phoenix today, a dark horse of the desert, which within a few years may have a larger population than Boston or Philadelphia. And you ask yourself, how did it happen? How could such a beautiful, sprawling city emerge from this desert dust? Heat was one of the reasons that kept people from settling parts of Arizona, you know, because when it's 110 in the summer or 115 or even hotter and you don't have refrigeration, it's Mm -hmm. not a very friendly place to live in. That challenge was temporarily solved with the development of refrigeration technology after World War II. 
And so with the problem of the miserable summer heat solved by air conditioning, people poured into Phoenix from all over the country. I'm an Arizona native, and so are my parents. And that makes me relatively rare, because in the 1950s, when my grandparents moved here, the population of the Phoenix metro area was about a quarter of a million. By the 1990s, when I was born, it was two million. Today, it's over five million. But the thing is, cooling all of those millions of people's homes isn't free. But what does refrigeration demand? It demands enormous energy. A lot of that energy came from coal. And so what we're confronting today is because of, you know, industrialization all over the world, much of which has been fueled by coal, uh, we've got this warming climate, which is causing temperatures to skyrocket. The National Weather Service has weather records for Phoenix going back to 1896. It separates the data into two categories, the whole historical period from 1896 to now, and then the recent period from 1991 to now. Let's say the hot season starts when it first reaches 100 degrees and ends when it last reaches 100 degrees. For the historical period, the average hot season was four and a half months with 12 days over 110 degrees. But in the recent period, the average hot season has been over five months, with 21 days over 110 degrees. In the summer of 2020, there were 53 days over 110 degrees. You know, this whole chain reaction of environmental consequences transforms environments all over the world. And, you know, one of those changes is in Phoenix, you know, it's over 100 degrees at midnight in July and August. That requires more energy to keep the coolers going. Will we reach a point where it becomes so hot that people will no longer want to move here? I wanted to talk to Sheridan because I wanted to know where we are now in the grand story of human civilization in the Salt River Valley. We're in a boom and it's not slowing down. Phoenix has grown faster than any big city in the U.S. in the past 10 years. But as we grow, it's getting much hotter and we're putting more and more stress on all our infrastructure. Speaking to Sheridan, I started to think that no one saw it in the 50s and 60s, but there is a cost to all Phoenix's growth. It can't go on forever this way. Sooner or later, there will be a bust. We could go the way of the Hohokam or the ghost towns of the Wild West. It's a fertile place for humans to live. They've lived here for 12,000 years, but it exploded at a time almost of like a honeymoon ignorance era of energy use. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. A honeymoon whose marriage is now going wrong. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. And so we're waking up from that dream and realizing it's not this stuff isn't unlimited. But then on the other hand, you know, there has been incredible innovation. That's true. And, you know, we'll see if it continues to keep pace with the environmental challenges we're confronting. Sheridan pointed out the connection between heat and energy. The hotter it gets, the more energy we need to run the AC and keep cool and alive. And a lot of experts are worried that system could break down suddenly and disastrously. 
Extreme weather, like drought, heat, and cold, can knock out power in a whole city for days at a time. It's already happened. Mother Nature's relentless assault on Texas continues. Periodic blackouts that have been going into effect since early this morning. That leaves up to 2 million Texans without guaranteed warmth. Uh, what a nightmare it is to be without power. It's not just cold, it's bitter cold. It's unbelievably miserable. To put it simply, our country's power systems were not designed to withstand the stress that extreme weather and extreme demand can put on them today. Drought can lower water levels and limit hydroelectric power, and heat can overwhelm power lines. Imagine, it's the height of summer, a heat wave rolls in. It's 115 degrees for more than five days straight. Power goes out all over town, no air conditioning. We like to call that a cascading disaster. And uh, it's not just the heat and the power, but your water will go out too. This is Melissa Guadaro. She's a heat researcher at ASU. She works with MAG to open cooling centers like Justice Center, and she's thought about how these places could be useful in a time of disaster. When we surveyed cooling centers in the valley, uh, less than 10% had backup generation capacity. So where will people go? How will they stay cool and survive? Researchers have called this hypothetical scenario the Hurricane Katrina of extreme heat in Phoenix. So we have to be serious about this. I mean, we have to take it seriously and, and not to frighten people, but just to be prepared that, you know, do you have a plan? I think anybody who works in this extreme heat space is not worried that it's going to happen so much as it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. One group of researchers estimated that a five-day power blackout in a Phoenix summer where indoor temperatures reached 100 degrees could leave 1.6 million people injured or dead. There is one thing that Guadaro and others think could significantly mitigate such a nightmare scenario. The solution I'm really excited about that's in the very early stages is this notion of resilience hubs. So just imagine a place that is a trusted community space. And that could be a community center, a school, um, a place of worship, uh, a library. And um, imagine if it was also a resilience hub. So that means that you have programming for 99% of the time when it's regular times, right? I mean, you would come together to try to solve community problems and certainly having battery backup in case we have one of these cascading failures that you just knew to go there that, okay, so I don't have power, but I know they'll have power. I know they'll have food. Resilience hubs are an example of what one ASU researcher I spoke with, Patricia Solis, calls a resilience dividend. A solution that creates resilience to extreme climate conditions, but is also good for the community even in normal times. Community-driven win-win solutions are important not only in the event of a cataclysmic disaster, but for everyday heat as well. It's not just getting hotter because of global warming, temperatures going up everywhere. That's part of it. But the urban heat island, a phenomenon that causes the heart of the city to be as much as 20 degrees hotter than areas just outside of it, is probably a bigger factor. It's caused by all the concrete, asphalt, people, cars, and buildings that generate and absorb heat. The thing is, this urban heat effect varies dramatically depending on what part of town you're in. You don't even need to be a scientist with scientific tools. Just drive your car from one end of the valley to the other and check the temperature on your dashboard and you'll see the difference. Guadaro's work on the present day and Sheridan's work on history are based on a common thesis. 
when the environment wreaks havoc, some people face worse consequences than others. There's been a lot of academic research on how redlining years ago has really impacted investment in neighborhoods. The map of the hottest neighborhoods in Phoenix today looks very similar to the map of neighborhoods with the highest child poverty rates, lowest incomes, highest portions of people of color. One study showed that there was a very close correlation nationwide between the neighborhoods that were historically set aside for poor homeowners of color and those that are most affected by the urban heat island today. It's certainly something that you can see with the naked eye that that the chronic disinvestment in certain communities and what has resulted from that now 30, 40, 50 years later. When you drive through certain neighborhoods, you notice that there's very little vegetation, if any. And um, places where people are, there's no shelter. There's no uh, bus shelters. There's just no shade in general. These warmest neighborhoods in the Phoenix area can be over 10 degrees hotter than the coolest ones. Guadaro spent a lot of time speaking directly to people in these communities about how heat affects their day-to-day life. It was almost heartbreaking to hear these stories because these people were working full-time and they knew that the hot weather was coming. The summer heat isn't fun for most anyone in Phoenix. But for a lot of people, blasting the AC and running at the gym on a treadmill as opposed to being outside is an inconvenience. For people who live in the less affluent and much hotter parts of town, it's more serious. I was so surprised at what an emotionally charged issue extreme heat was. They knew that to keep their thermostat below 85, 88 degrees was just, it was just not affordable. And the stress that that brought on, knowing that even keeping it at that level meant that they were going to have to forego some other things like food or medicine or uh, putting gas in your car, that there were just such difficult choices. And uh, for them, heat is an absolute catastrophe. Justice Center's neighborhood is a hot spot. There is scorching hot asphalt, homes and government buildings, and a lot of barren brown dirt. It's a world away from the luscious, shady, palm tree-lined Willow neighborhood just a couple of miles north. It's not a place I wish on my worst enemy. <laughs> it's so hot, and then with the humidity, it's hard to breathe. I have a hard time breathing with the humidity when it's high. And in the heat, you're like turning on the faucet and you're just pouring sweat. This is Kathy Rodriguez. Like Michael Smith, this is her first summer trying to live outside in Phoenix without a home. She was a hairdresser in Mesa for years before carpal tunnel syndrome made working impossible. Then last fall, she said her apartment complex burned down and she was out of options. It was tough in the winter, but she did have a friend with her that helped keep her safe. Her name was Sophia. She was a chihuahua, or is a chihuahua. <laughs> Some guys came up in the middle of the night when I was sleeping and she scared them off because they didn't know I had a dog and she barked and jumped and they jumped back and go, oh my God, she's got a dog. And I look up and I'm like, yes, Ivy, you better get out of here, leave me alone. I was a downtown niece sleeping on the bench. <laughs> but when the hot weather came, Sophia struggled outside all day. It was just too hot. She was panting really hard, and there was no place for Mesa to take her and cool off with her. Kathy gave her up, gave her to the police. I knew I had to do it. It was hard doing it. 
given a rest. I'm sorry. Yeah, I had to do what's best for her. I didn't want her to die. She didn't deserve it to live like like I like I'm living. She's a good dog. Kathy suffered a heart attack in the hottest part of the summer. She was in the hospital for a few days, then right back out onto the streets of Phoenix. While she was recovering, she had nowhere to go to escape the heat. Is it, is it hard to find a place to go inside? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There, especially around this area, there's there's mainly houses. Nobody's gonna let you go in their house and get cool. <laughs> the, the closest store is what probably about a mile. Oh man, it is so hard, especially right after my heart attack. I would sit, I would sit, I didn't know the senior center was here. I would sit out back against the wall and just sit there and cry. <laughs> Cause I didn't know what to do and it was so hot. And I'm just like, I was lost. I'm still lost, but I'm getting there right now, but. It was heartbreaking talking to Michael, Kathy, and others in their situation. A string of bad luck, and they're suddenly stuck outside with no respite from the heat. They told me restaurants won't let them in, and people won't even look them in the eye. I live near Justice Center, and sometimes I see Michael walking on the street as I drive by with my AC blasting. And I wonder where he's going and how much longer he can stay healthy. 61% of Maricopa County's 2020 heat deaths were people over 50 and 53% were homeless. When you hear their stories, it's easy to see how places like Justice Center are actual lifesavers. But these places are still relatively rare, spread out, and not always open. That's why Guadaro and the people at MAG are working so hard to recruit more nonprofits and other organizations to open cooling centers. The cooling centers are like triage or damage control. But there are some options for long-term solutions. Because the good news is, us humans created the urban heat island, so we can undo some of its worst effects. It's going to have to be a suite of solutions. So trees, yes, that's just one bit in the solution set. But maybe it's also adjusting work patterns where people work much earlier in the morning and certain times of the year. In the city of Phoenix, there's a test right now about cool pavements, uh, which is a white surface on pavement to make it cooler. To bring these solutions to life, Guadaro stresses investing in collaborations, in working groups, in neighborhood groups who want to solve this problem uh, amongst themselves, but with the help, funding help from different people. All these things together really, I think, will allow us to have a much cooler future. I wanted to see for myself these people on the ground who can make solutions happen. So Guadaro put me in touch with Gretchen Reinhardt in Tempe's Escalante neighborhood, which, Guadaro said, was an historically redlined area, meaning it was designated for lower-income people and people of color. Today, the neighborhood census tracts have lower property values, higher poverty rates, and higher percentages of Black and Hispanic residents than other parts of the city. Perfect timing. Thank you. It's a nice October afternoon, but the sun is still shining powerfully. I mean, do you want to start by by just sitting in the shade somewhere? Sure. And we've got benches um, under the, okay. the shade structure, and there are more shade structures that way. So much of Gretchen's work is about creating shade for her neighborhood. 
And once we find some, she tells me more about it. So I grew up in Colorado, um, and so I've always loved the outdoors. It was always a part of my life. She came to Arizona to go to grad school at ASU and later studied how climate change can lead to mass migration and global-scale conflict. But about a decade ago, something happened that would bring the abstract, massive-scale problem of climate change right to her front door. One of my neighbors um, was one of the statistics on, on heat. Gretchen's next-door neighbor was in her 80s. She was a widow and lived alone. She had children who were watching out for her, caring for her. She had very caring neighbors. You know, I, I don't know what's on her death certificate, um, but what I do know is that her, um, her neighbors, when they checked in on her, when she didn't, wasn't there for that check-in, and they uh, went into the house, the house was at 120 degrees. Every summer, people in Phoenix die inside, at home. Sometimes their AC breaks, sometimes it gets shut off because they didn't pay a bill, and sometimes they just can't afford to run it. It really brought it home about how, how much heat already kills. Gretchen focuses on her own neighborhood. One solution she's pursued is an obvious one, planting trees. In the short term, they provide shade and cool the air around them through evaporation. They also capture carbon that would otherwise go out into the atmosphere and contribute to hotter temperatures globally in the long term. Gretchen identified an unshaded sidewalk people walk down to go to school and get to the light rail. You could see it from where we were talking at the park. We thought it would be easy to put plant trees there, um, but it turned out that was really, really hard. She got over one hurdle, convincing the city of Tempe to fund the trees, but then she had to get individuals who lived in homes along this path to sign off on trees being planted in their yards. She pointed out houses and told me what went wrong with each of them. They really wanted a specific tree that wasn't one of the options. That one, that person really wanted it, but then they sold their house in the period of time. So like nobody was ever there <laughs> when we needed it. Gretchen and I walked over to her house where she's lived for 25 years. She pointed out trees on the way. So these two trees that are planted right next to each other, both will want to be very big trees. So because they don't have that room, right, the tree is going to self-destruct. She and her husband have put a lot of thought and effort into the trees they've planted in their own yard. But that's hardly the case for her neighbors. She said when she moved in, people around her had lived in their homes for decades. Now many of them are renters, in and out in a couple of years at most. People buy houses, sell houses, that five years is a reasonable time frame for you know, as long as I'm going to be here. Mm -hmm. And so they don't care what's going to happen in 20 years. But the trees, we need people to care about that tree. This is a good example of the challenges faced by the hottest neighborhoods in town. Their residents are largely renters working hard to support their families. Investing and watering and maintaining a new tree in their yard might not be feasible. And so Gretchen's tree planting quest shifted gears and ended up planting trees at the nearby school. We walked by during recess. Kids were playing loudly and using the trees as home base and some kind of game of tag. And when they rest, they sit under the tree's shade. When I look out and I see kids in the shade, I, I feel like, you know, our choices today change, change the world for the future in a, 
in big ways and they'll in ways that continue to grow sometimes I worry that um, that people appreciate things they don't notice that they're appreciating and they don't know what it took to get to get them there and um, you know we all need to be doing things that in 20 years will be that that positive difference and that nobody will know we did it you know Gretchen lends me a bike and we ride around the neighborhood. She points out problems and solutions and problems with solutions. There was an affordable housing complex for vulnerable seniors like Kathy and Michael, a shade structure that didn't really provide any shade, and a new environmentally friendly housing development that might make the neighborhood less affordable for longtime residents. Gretchen's work is full of compromises, obstacles, and lessons. We ended our long bike ride in Escalante's community garden, which naturally Gretchen helped to build. Oh, it's a wonderful addition to the neighborhood. The, the... There is a ramada with barbecues and benches, colorful murals, and of course, plants bearing fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, this is basil, a tomato plant, lemongrass. Um, I believe that this is okra. We have a whole lot of okras I can show you. There we've got a huge grasshopper. Look at that. Gorgeous guy, yeah. Wow, that is a giant grasshopper. The community garden is another example of the resilience dividend, a win-win solution that is good for the environment and good for the community even in normal times. Making this stuff happen takes the tireless effort of people like Gretchen. That's a ton to ask of people. What do you think people need to like motivate them to get out and do it? Um. <laughs> by noticing how fun it is. It's really lovely to be out in the garden, you know, or, uh, or watching trees grow, or um, just seeing your neighbor smile. So this isn't just uh, you doing service, sacrificing your no, time. This no, is, no, So th this is what you love to do. Yeah, yeah, I think. I mean, you must I really feel it. like this is your neighborhood. I do feel like this is my neighborhood. I, I guess I've always kind of had a grow where you're planted kind of approach, so. My afternoon with Gretchen made me realize how solutions to any aspect of Phoenix's intensifying heat problem take a ton of work. They can be misguided or have unintended consequences, or they can be home runs, like the garden. One thing that seems to always help, involving community members themselves alongside experts to craft solutions that people actually want. That's the idea behind Guadaro's work and the idea behind an event that took place at the Escalante Park just hours after Gretchen and I met there. It was officially called a Neighborhood Resiliency Event. Kids run around, parents set up their seats in the grass, and organizers set up booths about heat, health, and energy conservation. There's free food too, right from the garden. We're cooking some okra. So these are almost all of it, except the apples are grown right here in Phoenix. 
This is Tasha Trahan from Unlimited Potential, a local nonprofit focused on health and low-income communities in the Valley. They worked with the city of Tempe to organize the event. It was the first time they've collaborated to bring the community together for a conversation about heat and other environmental issues to teach and learn from them. If I miss something in, in one of the languages, please let me know. Si me pasa algo que se me acaba el inglés, por favor déjenme saber. Attendees talked about power bills that were too high in the summer, health problems that the heat makes worse, and the possibility of switching to renewable energy, like solar. Later, Tempe's sustainability director, Braden Kay, takes the mic. What we heard from residents is that there are neighborhoods in Tempe, like the, the, the neighborhoods near this community center, that some voices are not being heard. And that we, as a city, need to do a better job of listening to, listening to you. The MC from Unlimited Potential took the mic back and sent the night out on an uplifting note chance of si se puede. Yes, we can. you so much for listening and to be sure you don't miss our future episodes subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and if this episode sparked your curiosity or inspired you to take action yourself you can find more information on the organizations we profiled and the issues they face on our website herearizona.org that's h-e-a-r arizona there you can also find our other podcast series on the most pressing challenges our state faces, like homelessness, aging, and funding for the arts. One of the best ways to support our community-based solutions journalism is to tell your friends about it. They can search for Here Arizona on their favorite podcast listening app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, Spotify. And since we're all about empowering our community, we want you to be a part of the conversation. Follow Here Arizona on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Here Arizona is a production of the Division of Public Service at Rio Salado College, which includes Sun Sounds, Spot 127, KBOC, and KJZZ. Special thanks to Justice Center, Maricopa Association of Governments, Melissa Guadaro, Patricia Solis, Thomas Sheridan, the City of Tempe, Unlimited Potential, and Gretchen Reinhardt for their help with this episode. This episode was reported, written, produced, scored, and hosted by me, Anthony Wallace. Linda Pastori is our executive producer.